approach the work that we have a people problem, that we need more leadership development or that we should be hiring more people or different people. I approach the work that we have a design problem. We will work and act and fit into the container that is the one that's the, what we don't see. So that is what's creating a lot of angst right now, not just for women, but for all of us. This podcast is brought to you by Dentons. We are the largest law firm in the world with offices in more than 200 locations across 80 countries available to support you everywhere you do business. We're a law firm that embraces change and can help you grow, protect, operate, and finance your organization, which is why Dentons is organized to offer more than just legal insight. We're here to help you find business solutions in a seamless fashion across the globe. Hi everyone, my name is Heather Barnhouse. I'm a partner and lawyer in our Edmonton office. Welcome to my podcast where I explore the topic of women in entrepreneurship and leadership and the ecosystem supporting the growth of this segment. Today I'm joined by Jennifer Kluth, who's a leader in innovating our workspace design. She operates under the brand OpenWork and brings a fresh, unique perspective to the design of work. She calls herself a fractional executive because she works with founders, CEOs, and executive teams, not as a consultant, not as a full-time employee, but on these teams as they tackle the difficult tasks of leadership and system design. It's different, and I'm looking forward to learning how this works exactly. Jen was promoted to the director level of a multi-billion dollar retail company at age 27 and has real experience with some of Canada's largest and multinationals like Sobeys, Stantec, and Finning. He's worked with some terrorist women-led Alberta-based brands like the Little Potato Company and Rocky Mountain Soap. Her combination of lived executive experience and a slightly rebellious approach have made me curious about her views on work and how we, as leaders, can apply new thinking to our lives. Welcome, Jen. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you, Heather. It's great to great to have this conversation with you today. I'm looking forward to it. To, to start us off, can you give our listeners a little bit of background about who you are and what led you to where you are today? Oh, thank you, Heather. Um, well, as you said in the intros, I'm a designer and my roots come from Prairie Girl, Alberta. Um, although I have lots of experience and exposure work-wise to organizations all over the world, I've you know, chosen to stay in Alberta because of the lifestyle, because of the opportunity for me to own a house that I could mow, own the home and mow my own lawn and, uh, and, and to be here. I am the product of um, two very strong grandmothers and mm. that is part of my origin story as well my one grandmother very non-traditional and my other grandmother had uh, 11 kids and so oh, wow. that large family background with another non-traditional grandma you know in those first formative years I've realized has really shaped my outlook oh. um, how I view the world and um, also a bit of a, uh, my own identity as someone who, when I was in grade nine, I had a mohawk and I re oh. remembered that the other day. So a bit of a rebellious take on this traditional world of work. 
That's a fascinating story. I'm always really interested to hear people's origin story and how different pieces of, of your background and of your environment really shape and influence how you kind of get to where you are today. All of that to say all roads, you know, lead to, to whatever you want to make of it. And I think we, we need to do a better job of encouraging our kids and the next generation to really embrace who they are and what they bring to the table so that they too uh, you know, don't get confined in any particular pathway that maybe the world sets out for us. So I love that you've uh, recognized that and, and, and brought that into how you show up in the world today. Talking about how you show up, can you tell us a little bit about this work thing? And what, what is your purpose when you're working with organizations about work? Why, why the focus on that? My purpose is to work with organizations to design the company that their customers crave. Oh. And so often the design of organizations has been based on thinking that was really done around the 18, 1900s and they're still in place today and we don't question it. Huh. And so those are things like, you know, the, you know, James McKinsey who started McKinsey and co was actually mm -hmm. the origin of the budget in 1889. And the budget design was put in place to make sure that his managers actually wrote stuff down because he didn't trust them. But we've wow. kept the budget structure from then until now. Wow, um, that seems a bit outdated maybe. Like we should maybe refresh that from a few hundred years ago. Well, the, like things like the Gantt chart, 1861 yeah. was designed wow to control um, and predict behavior and you know modern project management was born but we still use these old tools um, robert prost in 1921 designed you know our uh, idea of of what the cubicle office is right now and he actually died regretting that design decision but we still use it in workplace design because it's quite less expensive to have you know, cubicles instead of investing in design. You know, if you've ever been to a board meeting and you've got minutes and motions and all that stuff, that came from, you know, Robert's Rules of Order, also in the late 1800s. Wow. We still use those today. And so there's all these examples of things we don't question that are brought into our organizations that if we say who says, and let's slightly tweak them, we actually unlock much better ways of working that feel more intuitive and and actually get the work done. That's fascinating. Um, what a thing to remember that or what a thing, you know, to have your dying regret be something that you know, 200 years later is still alive and well in in the workplace and in, in the culture that we uh, that we don't even question. How fascinating. So if we if we think about that and we think about some of these things that are outdated and I mean it's fascinating to to hear the history I, I didn't know any of that so that's uh that's really interesting why is it that we have such angst with the concept of work these days we keep talking about where we work as if you know the location of your chair actually matters and it will solve our problem um we treat work like like you've just given us in these examples, you've just told us about, well, this is how it's always done. So this is how we should continue to do it. Um, why is that? Why are we so reluctant to open our eyes and think about new ways of, of working? 
Great question. And not only why, but the impact on the way that we work right now, especially for women in leadership, is very felt. Meaning for every director who's promoted in organizations, two right now are leaving. And oh. I put myself as a former internal in organizations in that category. Tell we us about that. Yeah. Rising to, you know, the, you know, to these particular roles. And it's sort of similar to you pull back the curtain and take a look behind the scenes once we're in them. And, you know, we have lifestyles where we don't control our schedules, where we're, you know, 60 to 80% of our time in meetings, where the power dynamic is constrained by the workplace design. And really it's, it's, um, it's a telling story that we're opting to, to leave. Yeah. And so, I, I don't approach the work that we have a people problem, that we need more leadership development or that we should right. be hiring more people or different people. I approach the work that we have a design problem. We will work and act and fit into the container that is the one that's the, what we don't see. Yep. So that is what's creating a lot of angst right now, not just for women, but for all of us. So if the workplace was designed for control yep. and for Efficiency. Thank you very much, Henry Ford. Of course, <laughs> it feels like it, it isn't working for us right now. It's not intuitive, not much is predictable. And we forget that just if you're not at the top of the organization, you still have the ability to think. But the right. org structure puts the thinking people at the top, air quotes, and right. the doing people at the bottom. And that just isn't how life works. Interesting. I love the thought of, uh, you know, taking an org chart because we all use org charts for, for different, different purposes, but I love the, the, the image of saying, you know, traditionally the people at the top of the org chart are the ones that are thinking, why would you hire anybody if you, if they weren't going to think like, it doesn't make any sense, but you're right. That is the, the way that, you know, these things have, have sort of rolled out. So how can we think about that differently? What can we do knowing that and knowing that we spend a lot of time at work and work isn't going to go away? What, what can we do for leaders in organizations who want everybody to think? What, what, can they, what baby steps can they take to start to change this? There's a couple of baby steps. One of them is on the thing that we that is the primary tool you could say of, of leaders and in organizations, which is this old structure called a meeting. Yes. And we spend inordinate amount of times in meetings. When I say meeting more than two people having a conversation, trying to, you know, design and operate work. Yeah. And the way that we come in, the agendas, the way they're facilitated, um, the, the reasons, all of that stuff around this tool of meetings has been a fascinating and, and fix when I've been working in and with organizations. Funny story, I've done, you know, in a couple of them where we'll ask a question, okay, for folks, how often, you know, are you in meetings? And we'll put up the critical meetings, the ones that they're in every month, every year, strategy stuff, operating stuff. And we'll have a way for people to just rate them on basic criteria, good use of time, agendas. Um, do I use the information from the agendas? Some, you know, some, some very practical criteria. In most cases, people will get to the end of their 
meeting or conversation and they'll do a verbal, how was that? What are your suggestions? And everyone's like, oh, that was really great. Good meeting, thumbs up. When we go behind the scenes and ask these questions anonymously, they are coming back time and time again, which is we are hating this experience. We're guarding a level. Interesting. Right. Despite the fact that in their public face, they've said, yep, thumbs up, I'm good with it. What they're really feeling is this is terrible. I liken it to being, you know, the traditional, uh, you know, Thanksgiving or holiday dinner that we're all hauled into the room and, and have this experience because we have to. But generally, the conversation in the car was, you know, I kind of wish we didn't do that. So, so it's, right. it's very similar. So part of the practical piece is to understand that we're polite folks in, yes. you know, regardless of big C com, um, culture. And so we may not tell you the truth when we're in the room. So how do we redesign this core experience that we call the meeting so that when we're leaving, whatever it was, it was great use of time. And when I get to the end of the day, I don't have this feeling of as an executive, that's when my real work should start right. because I've been in meetings all day. And so we do some very practical pieces around treating meeting like it's a very scarce commodity understanding how to have good conversations and purpose around them and not doing a wash, rinse, repeat on agenda management um, because that creates a, when we go for coffee, we can have the conversation we need to have. Why is it that when we go to a meeting that the structure falls apart? So right. we're structuring that, that old thing we call meetings for it to feel effective. So that's a very practical thing to look at and it really unlocks stuff uh, around culture and, and uh, feeling of satisfaction. So I just wanna <clears throat> ask a, a little bit further on, on that. So you gave this story, you know, you gave the example in the story about when you ask anonymously, people say, yeah, I really hate it. Kind of like the Thanksgiving dinner that you alluded to. When, when with some of the organizations that you've worked with, when they've taken that feedback to heart and they've said, Let's just have meaningful meetings. So not just because it's always on a Tuesday and it's Tuesday, so let's get together. When they've eliminated the, the mess of the meetings and they've focused on the ones that are actually important and meaningful, is there still the disconnect between, I report to you to your face that this meeting was great, but then if I was asked anonymously, I'd, I'd let it all, you know, let it all out. Is there still that disconnect? Do you have any data on that? I do have data on that. And so in a couple of organizations, we've taken a look at their operating rhythm. What is an operating rhythm? From the time to strategy all the way through implementation, when you meet again for that annual plan, what are the touch points to say, are we going where we need to go and where do we need to adjust? Generally, yeah. that's what meetings are for. And so the changes that are in there are some very simple structures. There's always a check-in before we start. We don't get mm -hmm. the benefit of um, what's been going on in someone else's life before we're connecting. So we interpret behavior incorrectly because we don't have that background, what's coming into the room. So number Or the one. context, yeah, great. Number two, purpose and outcome first, agenda second. So similar when you get a, a wedding invitation, a wedding invitation tells you how should I show up? How formal is it? What should I be expecting? How might I prepare? Right. Same deal for meetings is, is a little bit oh. of prep first part of it. Interesting. Interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but it's so practical. It's so practical that 
if I want a really good outcome for the people whose time, you know, I'm inviting them to attend this meeting, I should prepare them for what this looks like, just like I should prepare them if they're coming to my home for dinner or they're coming to a wedding or they're coming to an event. They should know what to expect. And I think all too often um, you hear reports about bad meetings where there is no agenda or, yeah, there was an agenda, but instead we just talked about something else random because it was urgent, it was important, we had to, you know, and that happens, of course, sometimes. But if that is the norm as opposed to the exception, um, there is a really big problem, I think. And there's some, you know, pointy conversations with leaders who, if we set them up to be accountable, to know what's going on and control what's going on, our default in order to do that, because that's how Jen's being held accountable, is to call right. a meeting. And so there is a little bit too that says, oh, if 70% of my day is not meetings, we as leaders actually start to get back into craft. Right. And and, and participating and, and doing of the work, which has been the, oh, that's not what we're supposed to be in. So it actually adds capacity in execution because we're not just talking, we're actually doing some of the things that need to be done, which really when we get back to craft is very fulfilling. Um, probably when we started our careers, if we've started a business as an owner operator, we're there because we wanted to do, produce, design something. And being involved in that is incredibly fulfilling with others as opposed to kind of watching them from the balcony to see if everybody's scurrying about in the way that I told them. Yeah, that's fascinating. That really resonates with me. I, as you know, work with, with many entrepreneurs who are growing, scaling their companies. That, that means a lot of different things. But one of the uh, common sort of stories or anecdotes that I hear, and you hear it, you know, it's said a little bit differently depending on the entrepreneur, but the theme is, Sometimes you'll, they'll get to like the end, whatever the end is for them. So they go to school and they learn this craft and they're so excited about, you know, being able to produce in, in within their craft to, to, you know, have some output and work with clients and, you know, do all these things. And then they're like, yeah, I just don't, I don't love working for somebody. So I want to start my own business and I'm going to be the best, whatever they, whatever it is they do. And so they go down this path and they start their business and there's challenges along the way. And, you know, that's fun for a while. And then one of the things that I often hear as they get to the end or they get to, I want to sell my company or I, I'm, I want to retire or I want to do other things is, well, I, I loved working with clients. I loved being the practitioner of whatever it is I went to school to do. And what I didn't appreciate or didn't fully realized when I started my own company and I led a team is I don't get to do that. And if my identity is wrapped up in being the best at whatever your craft is, and now you don't get to do any of that, there's a huge identity problem um, that they have. And so, some of them are great people manager and some of them are great at growing their company, you know, internationally or doing whatever it is that they do. And some of them love that. But so often I hear, you know what, I, I let my qualifications, like whatever that was, I let those actually lapse because I, I just don't, I don't have time to do that. And I have great people who do that, but that's not me. And it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, as, as you get more and more senior within your job, your, your job might change. And as a leader, you want that because you want to be seen 
you know, to be leading people, but there's, I think, a, a, a part of people that is, that ties them to their purpose and ties them to why they, you know, they set out to, to do that in the first place. And that's a, a very common trend or theme that I hear is, I'm not, I don't have time to do that. But what you're saying is really, is really impactful is if we think about the system differently, think about the way that we do work, I can generate capacity that then allows me as the leader, maybe not full-time and maybe I don't need to do it full-time, but to, to go back to my roots and to go back and make the meaningful connections or help you know, the children that need to learn to read if it's a literacy thing or whatever the, you know, whatever the case is, I now build some capacity to allow me to continue to do what I love. And I think it's really impactful what you're saying is, is in organizations, whether they're entrepreneurial or not, um, that can go away inadvertently. I love the question, who says? And, yeah. you know, who says that we, we need to, you know, organize that leaders just lead and the team just does? Who, who really says that? How can we show up and do the job that needs to be done and not the job on our job description? When right. we're a small organization, we come in and we do the job that needs to be done. Empty the garbage can, define a strategy. I don't look at my job description to do that. As soon as we get a little bit bigger, we lose that thinking of doing the role and the job that needs to be done and not the one on my job description. So, so there is ways now through, you know, through open hiring and through concepts like talent marketplace and through network design that are new structures for companies that don't rely back on the 1800s design. Thank you very much. There's a lot of, it was like the renaissance of control around the 1800s and I'm not being, but we've not right. lost the renaissance of control into today's work. Um, and then you hit the piece with the entrepreneurs you know, we hit our late 40s and into our 50s and you have the, you know, your version of a midlife crisis. And really that is reflective of the thing I thought I would be doing. I'm now no longer. I've lost right. who I was. And right. how do we go back to that? And a company's reflection of our founders. So how do we reorganize that in a way that provides meaning? Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So if you're, a, you know, a little company or a big company and you think that this problem exists in, in your organization. You've inherited the culture, you've inherited from the 1800s, the way that it was done. What, what can we do sort of practically to start to shift that thinking? Because of course, the bigger the organization, the more people have to be on the bandwagon to implement a change. But how do we start those, those conversations? Like, is it, let's call a meeting to talk about how we did things in the 1800s? Probably not. That might be a little intellectual for folks, although wouldn't that be fun? But um, it could be. Um, I would start by, I, I do think of the way we gather or the way we meet. You know, you show me your meeting, I'll show you your culture. Yeah. So so there, there is the practical piece that says, how are we not on autopilot? And who says that we need to do strategy annually? Who, right. Who says, you know, so we kind of, it's efficient to take some, some thinking and move it in. But, but if you ask the question, who says it really starts to open, open things up. And second is I have a frenemy relationship <laughs> with the HR function. Okay. The HR Tell me about function. That. So it's, I, you know, 
because I, I come through that discipline, but I'm not sure it always helps because it can retrench by performance systems or structures, mm. job descriptions. It can retrench the things we're trying to escape because of how they see their role and how yeah. they define success. So I do believe there's lots of opportunity around the idea or function of HR. Interesting. Um, is HR your culture killer? And do you even need an HR function? So there's a lot of who says that goes along is that function in a company, whether it's people, culture, HR, whatever it's called, how they operate is going to lock and load how you work. Yeah, interesting. That's that's fascinating. And, you know, the other the other side of that coin or related to that HR function, and I don't mean this critically, um, but one of the comments that I hear from entrepreneurs who are trying to hire because their team is expanding and they're growing and they, you know, they need more capacity to help them execute that, that strategy. And they say, well, I just, you know, I went, maybe I went to a recruiter, depending on the size of the organization. I went to a recruiter or I asked my HR team um, to give me a job description. And they're like, well, like, I guess it's okay. I don't, I don't really know. And so you have this job description that gets put out there that may not reflect in any way, shape or form, the actual requirements. So to your point about, well, I show up and I empty the garbage and I develop a strategy. Well, there wouldn't be a job description out there that says on Tuesdays, you need to empty the garbage. And on Thursdays, we should talk about strategies. But the way that job descriptions, and this is a generalization, but the way that those job descriptions can be generated, either scares people away, they're like, I don't have, like, I don't have any of that stuff. I'm not I don't appear to be competent or qualified, so I'm self-selecting out. I'm not even going to apply for this. Or you get people who say, I check all those boxes, but are they a good fit for the actual job that needs to be done? Maybe not. And so I, I feel like your comment around this functionality, and, and again, this is a complete generalization, there's a lot that can be done to say what actually is the job that needs to be done. And if you take it back to, well, we need to, you know, our strategy is we're going to go global. Okay, great. How are we going to do that? And what are the skill sets? Do we care if they got a degree in 1900? Maybe not. Maybe we just need to know that they can do these five things and that they're going to be a really good cultural fit with the organization that we have. What's your thoughts on, on that? Does that tie in with your, your views? Can blow your mind, Heather. <laughs> what about the idea of, uh, it's called open hiring. Oh. Open hiring. So there's, um, I'm part of a group called um, Culture Brain. They are based out of Europe. And what I love about that is we are folks, not necessarily in HR, but are working with and for organizations who are, do, are breaking a lot of these systems. Western oh. Canada is a little bit behind. There's not a lot of stories. We can't look left and right at our company partners and go, oh, I see how that works. So I'm going to show you an idea or talk about a story around where this works practically. So open hiring started um, with the company that provided the, the brownies, actually, for Ben and Jerry's ice cream. We're not going to talk about what else is in those brownies, but here's what else we're going. <laughs> so open hiring said, what if we didn't do all of this extra time in interviewing resumes and um, and doing like references? Yeah. For some jobs, you come in, you do the job, you find out if, if it's a good fit, and then you continue on. Because most of the skills in these jobs are trained specifically. 
the body shop also starting to use open hiring that says really all of the value in this resume work and interviewing, great. I, I, if you were doing an interview and your job was interviewing, I can assess your interviewing skills in an interview. Pass right. that goose. Right. So they're taking a look at these, I, who says you need to do these particular structures and redesign it for the process of today. And it's working. Retention up, costs are way down. Maybe not everybody makes it through, but they haven't spent hours and hours of resumes and interviewing right. and all that stuff. So open hiring is one way. And second on job descriptions, job descriptions is a control mechanism like a Gantt chart. We huh. don't look at the Gantt chart Monday morning and go, what exactly should I do? We don't look at our job descriptions Monday morning and go, what exactly should we do? What if you got rid of the time and cost in doing job descriptions and focused more on what's the work that needs to happen? Consulting organizations do this a lot. They say, what does the client need right now? And how do we pull the skills together to support them in that way? Why don't we operate work in that fashion? And that's called the talent marketplace approach. Hmm. I love it. I love how just practical and useful um, it is because I think as you started out at the beginning, giving us some of the history lesson of how we got to where we are today, um, it's hard. It's hard to make those changes and it's hard to let go of what has been you know, so ingrained and so embedded in our work culture for so long. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's really refreshing that there are organizations that are tackling maybe various elements of that. Of course, they all have to fit together and it won't be a one size fits all. There are probably some jobs like maybe a rocket scientist where it's very important that you have some elements from a job description. Um, and so I, I don't know that you'll get away from that entirely, but I think it's really refreshing to think about how organizations are approaching it differently. And at the end of the day, trying to just get a better fit for the job to be done and the people who are going to help you achieve that goal of getting those, those jobs done. So that was really, uh, really a fascinating example. Thank you. So when we go you know, forward to the stories around women being promoted to the director level and leaving at twice the rate, some of the yeah. reasons that we're leaving is again, not about leadership capability. This isn't a capability or development issue. It's about we hit uh, the pinnacle of these structures that aren't intuitive, that we may not be able to ask why. Our days are full of meetings. We're left at the end of the day exhausted. There's nothing left to us or to me. That's my own example. And yeah. so we're saying I'm opting out. And so I think I know there's other ways of, of, of being in organizations that feel intuitive, that feel fulfilling. And yeah. ways that we can do that is to see the stuff we can't and break those structures. So breaking industrial thinking is really, really what brings, brings joy and it actually brings results. Yeah, and at the end of the day, what matters more than results, right? Like you, you, need, you need to show you know, a way of adding value. And I think everything that you've talked about really shows how organizations can create capacity, which adds value. They can create little bundles of joy, i.e., Let's not have a meeting because that will kill all joy and suck all life out of us. And we can be productive and we can show that that is meaningful. Um, and then we'll have an engaged workforce, not, you know, not entirely, but certainly moving the needle and people will be fulfilled in, in doing their job. What a great place to work if, if you can hit those things out of the ballpark. 
So open work as a brand was about when we can see it in a different way, it creates an opening. It's not about great transformation. That just feels sure. scary. We don't yep. need to go to the moon. I don't want to go directly there, but we do want to make some intuitive tweaks so that um, we are able to live in craft and right. that, you know, that the power dynamics, um, we aren't in a controlled environment anymore, <clears throat> nor you could argue we never were, but the point of work isn't to make me efficient and to have output. The point of it is to serve the customer. And so how are we doing that in the best way possible? Yeah, that's great. I love the reframing of just shifting how we're, what is our purpose? It's not to make you efficient. It is to serve the customer. And if you don't have a customer, well, let's, let's peel that back a little bit and think about why that is. Um, because that is the, that is the outcome uh, that, that I think is, is the most meaningful. If our listeners want to find out more about you and how to work with you, where can they go? One of my values is simplicity. And so in simple ways is I'm on a primary channel, which is LinkedIn. It works. Excellent. You can find me, Jennifer Kluth, at, you know, on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find open work. Um, I use one marketing channel because it's effective. It's simple and spending time and energy in the Twitters and the threads and all of that are, are, are fun. But for me to be effective, I need to be in one place where you can find me. And that's on LinkedIn. Well, that's great because when this episode's when this episode airs, we will link you on LinkedIn, and so our listeners will have uh, all the connection all the connections they need to find you. Thank you. Such a delight, Heather, to have this conversation and a little bit of history and a little bit of current, and you could probably feel the angst of the meetings. However, the rest of your day is going. Well, the rest of my day looks like a bunch of meetings. And now I'm thinking about, hey, how do I eliminate some of these meetings today so that I can enjoy the rest of the day? <laughs> well, for every meeting you, uh, you eliminate, um, I'll get a toaster oven. That's how I get rewarded. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm going to have a, a supply of toaster ovens shortly coming your way. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us, Jen, and sharing this. This has been really insightful, and I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Heather. It's been a delight. Thank you for joining the podcast today. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow to get notified when we have an update.